You're listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Amen. Remain standing and take your Bibles. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. And we'll be picking up today at verse 1. We'll read for a little while. And um, I'll try to move quickly. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. I love what Charles Swindoll entitled this particular section of the Scripture. He called it the day Jesus took off his gloves. You ever seen a fight where boxers are going at it or people who wear gloves and they're in this, uh, they're in this fight and all of a sudden one of them just finally loses it, gets mad, pulls the gloves off, which means now this has become real. This is a real conflict. And I, and I like that because here today we're going to uh, look at Jesus and in some ways he takes off the gloves with this particular group of people. So chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees, some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Hang on to that phrase right there. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Let's pray again. Lord, we Thank you, and we love you, and we give you glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I have a friend of mine who is a heart transplant doctor. He's very, very gifted. He's a very gifted individual, and uh, I really value his friendship. He's since transferred to Nashville. He's now there in Nashville, and he does heart transplants. Um... Uh, They probably do a couple of dozen a year. I think they did here. They may do more there in Nashville. One day I was asking him about this idea of taking a heart out of a chest cavity as diseased, setting it off to the side, taking another heart out of a victim. It may have been a victim of an accident, car accident, or some tragedy, and putting that heart in and then tying it all together, what's the most critical moment? And he looked at me and he smiled. He's just got a kind of a unique personality, kind of a carefree kind of personality. And he said, when you thump that heart, he said, when you stimulate it, and all of a sudden it 
catches pride and it begins to beat. He says it's a, it's a special moment. When you look at Jesus and you come to this passage, the, he talks about the heart. The heart is kind of the command center, the seat of the emotions. For years I, in working in an ambulance service, had periodically opportunities to do CPR. On one occasion, I told you I did CPR for an hour and 45 minutes. As far as I knew, that was the longest time that it had ever been done by the organization that I was with. The idea of the heart. When you and I are believers, Christians, we are positionally in Christ. Now, let me explain that. When you repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are now in the body of Christ and you are clothed in his righteousness. Does that make sense? So positionally, you and I are in Christ, but practically we're trying to work out this thing of sanctification. And we talked a lot about that, by which God is teaching us and instructing us on in how to be holy. Now, my first point is, when you look at this passage, you have to ask the question, what is the problem? William Barclay said this. He said, we see in this passage, now listen to this, the very essence and core of the divergence between Jesus and the Orthodox Jew. That means institutional religion. The Orthodox Jew of his time. I thought about, I had an individual ask me what I thought about the NFL controversy. And I said, I don't think Roger Goodell has handled it very well. If he has not taken time to sit down with Colin Kaepernick and some of these individuals, if he's not taken time to sit down with NFL players and ask one question, what would it take for you to stand up during the national anthem? How can the NFL as an organization become involved in what you are trying to address and do it in a positive way? What can the NFL do to get you to stand to your feet? And the individual that I was speaking to looked at me as if they were spellbound for a moment. And I wrote this down. If there's a conflict between an institution and the individuals who make up that institution, then we need to define it and what it would take to correct it. Does that make sense? I went on to write here in many ways, two things caused me to be in conflict with my own denomination, even within Southern Baptist and ultimately the church. Number one, as I began over the last two plus decades to pastor in the inner, inner city, I began to see a disparity and still do between my denomination and African American in the inner city. And so, number one, I begin to be at conflict with my own denomination. Secondly, when I begin to travel the length and breadth of this country, all 50 states, all 50 capitals, I saw something over and over and over and over again. Tallahassee, Juneau, Sacramento, uh, um, wherever you went, all over, St. Paul, Minneapolis, uh, no matter where you went, it was always the same. The inner city, New York City, had the skeleton remains of churches. 
churches have abandoned the inner city and left it. And it caused me to be at odds, not only with my denomination, but, quote, capital T, capital C, the church. William Barclay continued on this. He said, to the scribes and the Pharisees, these rules and regulations were the essence of religion. To observe them, listen to this, was to please God. To break them was to sin. This was their idea of goodness and of service to God. In the religious sense, Jesus and these people spoke different languages. It was precisely, listen, it was precisely because he, Jesus, had no use for all these rules and regulations that they considered Jesus to be a bad man. There, it, Barclay goes on, there is a fundamental, fundamental, fundamental split here that between those who see religion as ritual, ceremonial, rules and regulations, and those who see religion as loving God and loving their fellow man. I hope that makes sense, and I know it was long. In the 4th and 5th century... The scribe, the position of scribes began to, began to come into being. These were legal experts. They devoted their time and their attention to not only enforcing the Ten Commandments, they began to stretch the Ten Commandments. They began to, to, to think to themselves, how can we amplify the Ten Commandments and expand them and break them into thousands of minute guidelines, rules, and regulations? They were the legalists. Have you ever been around the legalists? Those spiritual policemen that are always slapping your hand, that are always telling you how to read the Bible, how to worship, how to do this. You know, they, they really come out during the holidays. Oh, we don't believe in Christmas. You, you put up a Christmas tree, and boy, they go at it. You know, they just, they just constantly trying to police the body of Christ, and they're legalistic. They get so caught up in traditions and rules and regulations that they forget the weightier issues of simply taking this season and loving their fellow man. You know, it's amazing to me, and I was telling our... Let me, let me show you. You tell me what this means. Some of you don't know because you won't come, and you don't come. Some of you do. This is our community meal Thursday. We'll run vans. We'll bring the homeless in. We'll have volunteers from churches, outlying churches, churches that will come in and plug in and be a part of it. But this is some volunteers. Now, if you're watching, if you're listening by website, what I'm doing, I'm leaning against the wall with my arms folded. And if I've offended you on the website, I'm so sorry. In other words, sometimes people don't know what to do with the homeless. They don't know what to do with this situation. So they, they tend to pull back against the wall to cross their arms and to be uncomfortable. Sometimes they'll come to me and they'll, they'll say, Now, Brother Jeff, what, what, what can I do? I said, well, you can go help Belle in the gym sort clothes or, or you, can, you can go into the kitchen and cut pies and cakes and come alongside Janice and Bethany and Haley and some of those. Or, or listen... You could go sit down across from a homeless person and talk to him for a moment. You see, because true Christianity is about loving God and loving people. 
You see, the scribes were the tradition. They, they had created oral laws, traditions, examples such as hand washing. Hand washing was not for hygiene. It was not about hygiene. The army ruined me here. Let me tell you how the army ruined me. Because when you're training as an officer, you deal with kitchen and food preparation, especially in a combat situation. And they were talking about how important hygiene is and how dangerous. Now, let me tell you, an entire battalion who gets tainted food and becomes sick can be an astronomical crisis in a battle situation. So hygiene is critical. And so this guy looked at us, and we were like some of you sitting out there, like Alex and WH, who seemed to be on an, in another world. We were, uh, we were talking to somebody, turn around. Uh, Kevin, reach over and make sure. WH, slap old uh, Alex on the shoulder there and wake him up. I've worked too hard for you to sleep. But anyway... This army, this army personnel who was talking to us about hygiene and about cleanliness and how important it was to the preparation of food, especially in a combat situation, said, conduct this test. Said, when you're in the bathroom, watch and see how many people wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. That ruined me. I tend to walk down the line, even at a church gathering, and say, You know, parents, you need to teach your children cleanliness, and it is next to godliness. I remember a homeless family who had been kicked out of their home. We went to investigate the situation and fill up. The family had a shed out back behind the house. The house had been closed off. They couldn't live in the house. They had moved back into this shed like a shop. And they were bathing in a wash tub. They were still trying to keep clean and neat. But, the, but, the, but this situation here, they're, they're not concerned. This is not about hygiene. Notice what, notice what Mark said. It's ceremonial washing. Let me describe this ritual for you. Before every meal and between every course of a meal, the hands had to be washed, washed a certain way. Water was drawn from a large container, a covered jars. You remember when Jesus turned the water into wine? This was the water that they set aside that was free of contaminants that was in these large multiple gallons of water that was used for washing the hands. Third, the fingertips were pointing up. They looked like a surgeon washing his hands. They would take water, a certain amount of water, about what would fill one and a half eggshells, a hollowed out eggshell, and they would pour that over the fingers as they were holding the fingers like this. Then they would take one hand and they would take the fist and they would rub around that hand and do like this. There was a certain way you had to wash your hands, a certain procedure. And now because the water was clean, you had to now wash the, the unclean water off the hands. So now they would hold their hands like this and they would pour water from the wrist down and let it drip off the fingertips. To fail to do this was not bad manners. It wasn't poor hygiene. It meant that you were unclean before God. Anyone who failed to do this, they believed, the Jewish people believed, that was, they would be subject to the attack of a demon by the name of Shibta. 
This was the Pharisees and the scribes, and it was, it was what, how they defined the proper service to God. But the reality is they had failed the weightier part of the law. Isn't that what rules and regulations and traditions sometimes do to us? They make us look ludicrous. To a Pharisee, to these scribes, people were unclean. Lepers were unclean. A woman after childbirth was unclean. Anyone who touched a dead body was unclean. Gentiles were unclean and anything a Gentile touched. In fact, when they went to the market and they conducted business in the market, they immediately went back, drew out a tub of water in order to completely wash their body from head to toe because they had touched unclean people. Let me show you again. They were these you just don't get too close to them because you might get dirty. I'm working on a book on racism. I've learned this. Color makes no difference. I used to think only white people were racist and I've come to discover that black and white are both racist. And our tendency is, is to go through the formality of being religious but forgetting relationships. So Jesus now turns to the hands as they versus the heart. The external versus the internal, the heart, the motives, the command center, the place where God goes. God doesn't look at our hands. He looks at our hearts. And I wrote down this question, why don't they, they were asking, why don't they observe the traditions of our fathers? And Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13, when he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. I was sitting in a meal this past week with an individual from a church, God bless you. And we do have tissue there. Hand her that tissue down. We watch out for it. You know, she can get it. Russell, here it is right here. Oh, goodness, you're going to have to hand her more than one. But anyway, uh, I was talking to an individual. We were sitting there, and, and he was talking. And I said, well, how's your new pastor doing? He said, well, he's doing, he's doing pretty good, but he's a little discouraged. I said, what's wrong? And before he could answer, I said, music. I said, the decisions that he's making about worship and about moving away from traditional and the orchestra and some of that, he, he's coming under fire. And he said, you're exactly right. Wow. You see, because sometimes we like ritual. We like bulletins. We like things to be orderly and structured. And that's all right. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, do everything decently and in order. But if we are not careful, we become about routine ritual rather than relationship. God doesn't look at our worship. He doesn't look at our, at our hands and our lip service. God looks at the heart. Ledger, I don't know if you remember when we one time went to visit Ernest Johnson. Ernest Johnson was this big six foot four, big old guy. He was a missionary. He lived on the, on the edge of, uh, of Zimbabwe and Mozambique on a coffee and tea plantation. We got up one morning and, and uh, Megan and... and uh, this is when this is where Sheila learned to make chocolate gravy. This sure this lady taught her chocolate gravy how to make it. So they're in there making biscuits and chocolate gravy. And if you need the recipe, you can see Sheila afterwards. She'll tell you about it. It's sin 
and you don't need to, well, no. But anyway, um, me and Ernest are sitting out there, and he had, he had these two beautiful, unbelievable, Dwayne, unbelievable German shepherds. And they're running around. One of them is called Chokwadi, which means truth. And he looked at me, and just out of the clear blue, he said, God taught me something. And we're looking across this beautiful African, just rolling hills in, the, in, in this tea and coffee plantation. And you smell where they, where they actually were also treed or, 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 or roasting some of the coffee beans. You could smell it off in the distance. He said, God brought me here to teach me that it's about relationship and not about religion and ritual. That's so true. Jesus accuses them of hypocrisy. One writer said the word hypocrisy has an interesting history. It begins by meaning simply one who answers. But he goes on to mean one who answers in a set dialogue or in a set conversation. That is, an actor who plays a role and who knows their lines and knows what to say. T come over Wednesday and he was out there and he was drunk. And he said, I'm not there. And he just wept and cried. I said, T, neither am I. He said, I thought I would look better. I thought I could get a handle on this. I said, T, that's your problem. You think you can get a handle on your addictions, and you can't. Only through Christ can you do it. And even then, we're battling. We're all battling. And I thought to myself, and Alan, let me tell you, sometimes this may be something to keep you going. Sometimes I think when I get to heaven, Tanya, that Jim Anderson is going to be there. Jim Anderson was a homeless man that we used to give honey buns to and coffee on Sunday morning. Jim Anderson was kind of a mean individual. But I picture Jim, Jim Anderson. I picture David. I picture, I picture Daryl. I picture some, oh, Daryl the Indian. I picture some of these homeless. One day when I come, into, when I come to heaven, Alan, they, they walk up to me, look at me, their face is clear, no addictions, no strongholds, no sin, completely robed in the righteousness of Christ, looking at me clean and pure and holy and saying, Brother Jeff, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for loving me. Jim Anderson was at University Medical Center. He was on his deathbed. I went up there to visit. When I went up there to visit in the ICU, they called me into a separate room. I didn't know what they were going to do. Sat me down in a beautiful room, big old, one of those big Tamara, one unbelievable tables that looks like it's worth about $20,000. And I said, why am I sitting here? And some of the doctors and the officials of University Medical Center came into that room and said, we wanted to see the pastor of a church that the homeless list as next of kin. He listed this church as his family and his next of kin. You couldn't pay me. God would have to stand at the foot of my bed and squeeze my toe and tell me to go to a traditional dead church where it's just going through the motions. Jesus said it's not a matter of your hands, it's a matter of your heart. Barclay said anyone to whom religion is a legal thing, anyone to whom religion means carrying out certain rules and regulations, anyone to whom religion is entirely connected with the observation of certain rituals and the keeping of certain number of tab taboos is in the end bound to be in a sense a hypocrite because you can't do it. 
The reason is this, such people believe that they are good if they carry out correct acts and practices no matter what their hearts and their thoughts look like. Wow. And he goes on to give an example. And we don't have time to look at it today, but he basically says this. He gives an example in, in chapter, uh, in verses 9 through 13, where he brings up Exodus, Leviticus, where God says to these people, you're to obey and honor your parents. He said, but you, the legalists, you, the scribes, you, the ones who know the law and find loopholes through the law. You take the gift You take the financial support that should be given to your parents to assist them in their need, in their heartache, in their their deprived condition, and you take that and you say, Corbin, which means simply this has been set aside for God. Dad, Mom, I can't help you. Sorry, I've got to take care of my obligations to the temple and to this corrupt Levitical system. And Jesus said, and the reality is, it's a legal loophole. And what you do, you turn right around and instead take the money. You don't even give it to the temple. You turn right around, you use it for yourself. Now, I'm going to, listen, I want you to put your spiritual antennas, and I promise you, you'll give me just a few minutes. I'm not ready to close, but I will close if if you'll listen. Jesus was attacking a system which put rules and regulations before the claim of human need. Let me give you another quote by Swindoll because it's so good and it got me. It nailed me. Swindoll states, what I believe is the current crisis, every young parent, listen. He said, what I believe is the current crisis in most of our academic institutions. In other words, all your, all your academic institutions, listen to what he said. It's if someone does not stand up to the challenge, to, if someone does not stand up to challenge those in authority who have departed from the truth, every playground will be run by the bullies. Now let me read it again. Think about it. Swindoll states, what I believe is the current crisis in most of our academic institutions. He said, if someone doesn't stand up in those academic institutions and challenge those in authority who have departed from the truth, he said, it is like a playground run by bullies. Let me tell you why you get your education. I've got a doctorate at RTS, one of the most difficult places to get a degree of any place in the world. I studied under, in the 1980s, R.C. Sproul. I wept and cried. I got angry. I wept. I cried at great sacrifice, trying to figure out how we would pay for the education and everything else. But let me tell you what it did. It positioned me with the ability to take the academic bully on. And if I need to, I can take my gloves off. The problem here was that love was at the base of everything Jesus was saying. He said it's not the defilement of hands, but it's the defilement of the heart. It's not not what goes into the mouth. He's a gastrointestinal doctor here. He looks at him and says, I created this body. I know every detail about it. 
Sheila and I were watching a program the other day where they pulled all the insides, the intestines out and set them on the man's cavity while they were trying to find a place in the, in the intestinal, some blockage. And, they, and Sheila said, my goodness, look at that. And I said, yeah, isn't it fascinating that we serve a God? I know you've seen it in gross anatomy where the internal dynamics of the human body are almost unbelievable. And yet, Jesus, the great physician, said, I created this body. Listen, it's not what goes into your mouth that brings corruption. It's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of it. Wow. Now, I want you to stand with me. And we're going to close a little bit different. I want you to listen closely. Because Jesus goes on to say this. He says, and he explains to his disciples, uh, let me see, down in verse 20. Okay, he gets, he, gets, he gets the disciples back to the house or the home, and the disciples are saying, you know, we, we didn't understand. Explain to us a little bit more. And Jesus goes, again, he turns into a gastro GI doctor. He says, listen, he said, guys, listen, are you so dull? In verse 18, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, it goes into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now watch verse 20. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. Oh, sit back down. It's not a trick. Sit back down. Everybody sit down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name, I'm going to name from, because in verse 21, listen, for from within, out of man's hearts, I'm going to name the word and I'm going to explain it. And if it is you, I want you to stand. If it's you. Um, now, I'm already standing, so I'm guilty. Now, Jesus said, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts. Fantasizing. Let me explain it. Fantasizing about and or planning evil deeds. Sexual immorality. We get our word uh, pornography, porno. Pornia in the Greek, sexual immorality, any sexual activity involving someone other than one's spouse, and particularly prostitution and fornication. Anybody sitting? Theft. Theft. Anybody ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? Stealing, it means taking money or possessions against the owner's will. Phronos in the Greek, the idea of murder. Deliberately ending an innocent life. Adultery, having sexual intercourse in violation of your marriage covenant. He just moves right on down the list. Greed, desiring to gain more than one's due. Malice, in a moral sense, a cultivated disposition towards sin. Deceit, treachery, contriving to deceive. 
lewdness, debauchery, showing a lack of self-restraint, involving socially unacceptable behavior, including excessive violence, wanton sexual activity, gluttony, gluttony. Anybody overeating? Daniel, we haven't got you yet, buddy. Anybody ever overeaten? Raise your hand. You ever overeaten? Okay, stand up. If you raised your hand, stand up. You're getting ready to go. You see, you better, you, you listen. I'm trying to get every one of you on your feet because what I'm trying to teach you and I is that we are all sinners. And only by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ are we not sentenced to eternity away from the Lord. He goes on, he says, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and finally folly, foolishness, willingly failing to use one's capacity of reasoning. Wow, pretty well nails us all, doesn't it? Now what does that mean? That means outside of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, that means that I have nothing to be prideful or to gloat over. That's it. Sheila and I, we were on our way to Hangar Church last night. We were on going down Highway 80. And after this, I'll pray. When all of a sudden, we're, we're just past the co-op and, and uh, two cars have stopped in the middle of the highway. And a guy is running around looking at his truck and another vehicle is there. Well, I'm barreling on. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing 60 in a 55, so I'm, I'm over the speed limit. I'm barreling on, and up ahead is a bridge. And there was a piece of brush about like this in the road. And my truck is high, so I didn't think anything about it. I thought, well, I can run over it, but I didn't. Instead, I slowed down. When I slowed down, I realized that a tree about that big had fallen across the bridge and was at the level of our windshield. Undoubtedly, the vehicle that was on the other side going the other way toward Brandon had hit it and broke it off. And they were looking at their vehicles. About that time, it's a hill. And people coming over that hill, they're like me. They're, doing, they're going over the speed limit, breaking the law. They're barreling on. I'm blinking. I'm sitting in the bridge, blinking my lights with my emergency flashers, and they don't look like they're going to slow down. And man, I'm blinking them lights, hitting my flashers, doing everything I can to warn them that if they try to cross that bridge the way they're coming, they will probably kill themselves when they hit that tree because it would cut the right off the top of the car. It, took the, it hit the top of my truck. I thought to myself, and I want you to listen. I thought to myself, wow. Here I am, stopped in the bridge, stopped on the bridge, doing everything I can to stop people who are on their way to a major catastrophic loss of life. Well, the people who've already gone through, you know what they're doing? They're checking their vehicles to check the damage. I'm going to tell you, folks, that's some of us in this room. There are people that are dying and they're on their way to hell. And the reality is, is they're on their way to an eternity separated from the love and the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. And you and I are too busy checking our cars, checking the material things of this world. And we don't have time to warn them of what is coming. And I'm warning you today. 
Are you a Christian? Do you know Christ? Are you sure? We're all guilty. And you may say, well, you know, I've still got these things in my life and I'm a Christian. I do too. Remember, positionally, I'm in the righteousness of Christ. I'm clothed in Christ. Practically, I'm still trying to work it out. And I'm not there yet. And neither are you. Do you know him? And if you don't, come. Come this morning. Give your life to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we give you glory for what you can do in this invitation. So we pray, dear Lord, speak to our hearts, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'll be here at the front. Reggie's here. Ledge is here. Whatever God may lead you to do this morning, whatever you need to do, doing business with the Lord, you come. You come.